I want to say uh, thank you to, to Mircha, and uh, thank you, uh, Tom and Mary, and uh, it's amazing how God is able to use those uh, many years in Ukraine and Eastern Europe to uh, continue to minister um, to us, and, and so thank you for that, and um, we, ne- we now move in our service to um, God's Word, and we have been in a series on... Um, what it means to be created in the image of God. Um, and my tag is uh, to be created in the image of God is about finding our place in the cosmos. And this morning, we're reflecting on the theme of death and how death is related to what it means to be human. And our scripture text comes um, again from Genesis 2 and 3. And so hear God's word to us. Um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And in chapter 3, And to Adam the Lord said, this is after they had eaten of the forbidden tree, And to Adam the Lord said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. And for for you are dust and dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, and she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Lord, we lift up our hearts to you again as we come to your word, seeking life seeking wisdom, Um, wisdom in a world of death. um, Nothing illustrates that more than what we have been witnessing over the past near month and what we just heard of a church and your people at the front lines of of death, trying to hold back the tide, trying to fight for life um, in in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would strengthen those churches and Mircha and other pastors and you would give them eternal perspective and courage in the face of death, Lord, because death is our great enemy. Lord, we pray for wisdom as we um, reflect this morning on the meaning of death in our own lives and the complex ways that our lives are intertwined with it. And so um, teach us this morning by your spirit and give us courage and hope in the face of death. In the name of Jesus, amen. There is a philosophy uh, called transhumanism that has increasingly become 
the guiding vision of people who are working on the cutting edge in technology, science, medicine, and engineering. And um, transhumanism is the belief that the human race can and should be able to evolve beyond, um, beyond uh, its current physical and mental limitations. Um, it should be able to do this through new scientific discovery and um, understanding. And one of the physical limitations of human nature that transhumanists have set their sights on is death. That death is something that we, we can and should be able to overcome. Now, um, one of the popular proponents uh, of transhumanism is uh, a thinker named Yuval Harari. And in a, a book he recently wrote called Homo Deus, um, he makes a case for defeating death. And I, I want to read you what he says. It's a little lengthy, but it, it kind of puts things in perspective. Um, this is the case that Harari makes um, for overcoming death. He says, for modern people, death is a technical problem that we can and should solve. Humans don't die because a figure in a black cloak taps them on the shoulder, or because God decreed it, or because mortality is an essential part of some great cosmic plan. Humans always die due to some technical glitch. The heart stops pumping blood. The main artery is clogged by fatty deposits. Cancer cells spread in the liver. And what is responsible for all these technical problems? More technical problems. The heart stops pumping blood because not enough oxygen reaches the heart. Cancer cells spread because chance genetic mutation rewrote their instructions. Germs settled in my lungs because somebody sneezed on the subway. Nothing magical about it. They're all technical problems, and every technical problem has a technical solution. We don't need to wait for the second coming to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a lab can do it. Let that sink in. If traditionally death was the specialty of priests and theologians, now the engineers are taking over. And Harari goes on and, and, and says, an increasing minority of scientists and thinkers state that the flagship enterprise of modern science is to defeat death and grant humans eternal life. <laughs> this is a perfect statement of transhumanism. It just really encapsulates everything, and it, it really drives a lot of our culture in the way we think about um, not just death, but human life in general. C Harari um, clearly has the Genesis story in his critical sites. Um, he rejects flatly the idea that sin is a result of some cosmic curse that's been ordained by God because of sin. Rather, death is, it's a technical glitch, right? It's a design flaw, something that can be improved with better engineering. Now, we might be prone to kind of dismiss this way of, of thinking as nothing more than science fiction fantasy. Um, it's a nice idea, but uh, not really a real possibility. But whether Harari is correct about science and medicine's capacity to extend life indefinitely 
it raises some really interesting and important questions that we as Christians need to face. Um, would it be a good thing? Would it be a good thing if we were to able to extend life indefinitely? Is this something that you would take if offered to you? Um, in practice, uh, Christians today um, don't hesitate to embrace medical intervention um, to extend, um, to, to, to defeat death and extend life. And except for in cases of, in which quality of life is, is so low, um, uh, we, we generally are always for the extension of life and um, to ex, uh, forestall death. And I think it is important that we embrace, we embrace medicine as an appropriate response to the curse, right? But is there a place, is there a place where we should draw a line, <laughs> right? Is there, is there a place there where we should draw a line, right? Again, if it was possible to, for you to live indefinitely without any loss to the quality of your life, would you do it? Would it be a good thing? Would you want to live forever here? Um, the question this morning before us really has to do with the nature of death and the Christian view of death. And, and in what sense is death and the experience of death part of what it means to be human? I mean, what Harari is trying to say, and this is the transhumanist vision, that, that death is not essential to being a human being. It doesn't have to be essential to being um, a human being. I think as Christians, um, we need to embrace two views of death. Two views of death that go together. Death as friend and death as foe. Um, these are, seem like a, a complete contradiction, um, but they actually both need to be held together, I believe. And, and let me just describe the views a little bit more closely. So the first view, this idea of death as friend, is a view of death that death is normal and natural condition of being a creature, a mortal creature. And that even though with death comes a lot of sadness, it is something that we should accept as central to being creatures. That we, and we have been given only an allotted amount of time here on earth. And moreover, that there is great wisdom, true wisdom is found actually when we're able to live in the light of our death rather than deny it as a reality. The second view is this. It is that death is a foe, that death is our enemy, that death is not natural, it is irrational, it is not the way things are supposed to be. Death is a result of sin and the curse, and we have a moral obligation to resist death, to fight against it for the sake of life. Both of these views are Christian views. <laughs> and the Christian life must be lived as a balance between the sort of oppositional pull of these views about death. Now, to understand how these views are uh, not outright contradictions, um, we need to return to the Genesis story. And we need to, we need to consider uh, when and how death comes into the picture within creation. And God is the first one to mention death before death ever comes upon the scene. God is the first one to mention it. And it, he says this in the garden when God puts the man in the garden. He says, the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall not eat of, 
you, you, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, here is the basis for the Christian understanding that death is a consequence of disobedience and sin. So after Adam and Eve, they disobey, they eat of the tree, and the Lord comes to them, and God says, uh, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat by the sweat of your brow, um, the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, again, what's really just very clear in these stories is that death is a consequence of sin and disobedience. And so when we come to an interpretation of the meaning of death, this always has to be a part of our, our thinking. Nevertheless, there are some ambiguities in this story and how it's told that are important. So what does God mean exactly by death? What kind of dying is implied here in, in the, God's warning to Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree? Um, was it merely biological death, as, or was perhaps there was something more inclusive, something else included with that that's more figurative? Now, um, note that, that God says, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So there's a temporal thing there. Like, soon as you, when you eat of this fruit, you will die right there right? And yet, in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they didn't die, at least not physically speaking, right? They didn't just drop dead. They weren't struck dead on the spot. In fact, what we learn in chapter 5, when we get to the genealogies, is that Adam lived to the ripe old age of 930, right? So what exactly did God mean when he said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die? There's clearly something more going on here than simply physical, biological death. Um, many in the tradition, and I think this is right, we interpret this, that there's a figurative spiritual sense that death will come, that you'll, you die spiritually. Um, and, and I think that is, that is correct. There's a sense that when you eat of this tree, what you've done is you've created a separation between yourselves and God. God is the source of life. And in disobedience, you separate yourself from God, you separate yourself from the source of life. There is this mysterious interaction, uh, interconnection between disobedience and our physical death. And yet, when God is talking about this death, he's, there's something more there. Now, the connection between disobedience and death, and this is what I'm driving at here, does not explain everything about death. I, when we think about the unfallen creation, um, and we read these texts, we most often think that physical death was something that was completely foreign and, and, and to creation prior to the fall, that nowhere in creation would you have found death. However, I think we have reason to wonder if this is entirely the case. Is it possible that there was some form of death that was part of the original creation, that was not a consequence of sin or the curse? And it would, nothing like death as we experience today with the same prevalence, but something more related to death as part of things coming to life and conclusion um, as a life cycle in nature, right? 
There are uh, biblical interpreters going all the way back to the early church who um, have made the argument that some form of death was part of original creation that was good. That somehow that was part of the early design of God. And perhaps it just applied to animal life and the rest of life and not to human beings. But that the idea that death itself was completely foreign was not necessarily the case. But it didn't have an association with punishment and death. And I think there's a lot to to commend in this view. I'm I'm hesitant just to say this is what the text says because that's too speculative. But I think there's something that, reflecting at least on this, helps us bring into focus about um, the nature of death. The reality is this, is that we, um, as creatures are always dependent creatures. We're dependent creatures, and we are made from the same stuff as the rest of creation. Even though uh, we are image bearers, which sets us apart from um, all the rest of creation, nevertheless, we share in the same stuff. We are biological organisms. We are mortal. We are not made of heavenly materials. And so, whatever the reality of whether there was or was not death prior to the fall, there was always the possibility of death. Always the possibility of death. God even mentions it, right? There was always the possibility of death because we are creatures. We have limits and bounds. So we have no idea of what creation looked like prior to the fall and after the fall. We don't know what kind of transformation sin brought on creation. Um, Nevertheless, what we can say is this. Human beings, and it's a fact of our created nature, are mortal creatures. And that it is part of nature now. Nature. (laughs) Our biological organism is that we die. We die. Our time has been allotted to us by God, and eventually we die. And this is, I think, important, you know, and this is what Moses in Psalm 90 is is, uh, calling for us to embrace when he he says, um, teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Death now is a central feature of Biological life cycles of the span and arc of our lives. And that insofar as death marks the end of our natural life cycles as creatures, it should be something that we welcome as a friend. Um, The rejection of death is another way that we reject our creatureliness. When we, when we, when the, the ultimate rejection of death is another way we reject our creatureliness. Um, There comes a point, in other words, that in a person's life in which we we must stop resisting death and turn and welcome it because we know that our journey has come to an end, right? Those of you who have buried elderly parents, walked with them, um, know something of what I mean. Uh, Todd Billings, uh, who is a theologian, um, with uh, bone cancer, wrote a book um, called Rejoicing and Lament, and he, uh, he tells a story in another book, a follow-up book of his, 
where he was reading this book with, um, at a nursing home with uh, elderly, pa- elderly uh, people in, in their 80s and their 90s. And they were discussing his book of living with incurable cancer. Um, and in the book, Billings speaks at length about, about death as an enemy, death as our great enemy. And uh, he, to his surprise, and he discussing this book over the course of the month, he kept receiving similar kind of pushback and questions to this idea of death as an enemy. And um, when he did speak of it so much, um, they asked him, why do you speak so much about death as an enemy when for many of us, we're looking forward to death? Um, in fact, they view death as a kind of reward. And he, he says this in the book, he says, um, they understood why death was an adversary for their kids or grandkids. Moreover, they didn't want me to die, especially since I have young kids. But for them, their bodies were wearing out, deteriorating, falling apart. Their biggest fear was that they would live too long, debilitated by decay, but kept afloat by medical technology. Most of their peers and their friends had already died, and death would come as a welcome, even overdue friend. There are numerous instances in which death in the Bible is not described as a form of judgment or the curse, but actually as the natural conclusion of a life well lived. Uh, Let me give you a couple brief examples. One is of Abraham. In Genesis 25, it says, these are the days or the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Of Job, we find a similar statement at the end of the book of Job. It says, after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died, an old man full of days. In these accounts, and there's others in the scriptures, you find uh, death is a conclusion of one's life. It's rather than a form of judgment or curse, it is the natural ending of a story. And I think this is that part of death that we have to embrace, that there comes a time in our life, at the end of our life, when we're able to look at death and welcome death. And that's a hard thing, right? (laughs) And yet to be able to look at death and even welcome death at the right time presumes that you know how to deal with death as your foe, as your enemy. You cannot befriend death before you have learned to overcome the fear of death. The fear of death as the true enemy of your soul. Because to be sure, and this is the second point, death is your enemy. Death is your foe. And it is right to fear it. Because bound up with our physical death is not merely the cessation of life, but is the fear of spiritual death. It is the fear of condemnation and separation from God. And even for those people who deny the existence of God, of heaven and hell and an afterlife, they cannot simply accept death as just a natural fact. Like, oh, it's time, my time to go. See you later, right? Um, there's that proverb that some of you have heard, right? There's no atheists in foxholes, right? No atheists in foxholes. Um, and the idea is this, is like even those who are adamant in their disbelief about God that when confronted in the actual moment of death start to get a little bit spiritual, right? 
because it points to something that's more about what it means to be human, right? There's more than just this life. And I think the irony um, of the trans the transhumanist uh, desire to overcome death is that in an ironic way, it's an actual confirmation of the biblical understanding of death as our enemy, right? That death invariably um, takes something from us, it steals something from us that that shouldn't be taken. I mean, when you look at animal life, um, animals don't seem to fear death like we do, right? Sure, I mean, animal is going to resist and try to live because the instinct of live is biological, but animals don't, aren't existential about their own deaths, at least as much as we can perceive. Human beings experience death in a very different way. And so the idea that, that death is a technical glitch in the system that we can fix, we ought to fix, is deep down. It is not an assumption based upon uh, biology, Right? It's, I mean, how do you arrive at that base, if you're strictly materialistic and naturalistic in your understanding of the universe, how do you come up with the assumption that uh, death is something that we should and could do away with? It, in fact, actually points to this fact that there's a spiritual intuition that we have when we're faced with our own deaths, is that this is not right. <laughs> I don't want to go here. And we resist it. Yet the fact of the matter is, the very first truth that we must accept about death as our enemy is that we cannot overcome it. There is nothing that we can do technologically, scientifically, medically to ultimately defeat death. And this is honestly, this is the first thing in a way as a Christians that we have to embrace and hold out before the world. Death is an enemy that we cannot overcome. Now, I wanna draw your attention to um, the this, this, this striking uh, seen at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, I'm going to read it. This is far, starting in verse 22. Behold, the man, this is God speaking. God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he, was, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now up to this point we've heard, we've heard mention of the tree of life, but we have no idea what its role is and what it does. And, and here now we have this, this comment that actually the tree of life is associated with eternal life, Right? which then causes you to want to go back and reread the whole story in a different light. Um, this tree gives eternal life for those who eat of it. And we don't know if Adam and Eve, and we don't know if it's like a, we have to continually keep eating of the tree or it's a one-time thing. We don't know if Adam and Eve ever ate of this tree or not. But now it's clear that God says they, and because they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they cannot, they must not eat of this tree of life. They must not be able to eat of this tree of life. So God um, sends them out of the garden to eat of the tree of life after having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, would utterly destroy us. And that's the sense here. Um, when you read the story, I think you, you get a sense that, that God expelling us from the garden so that to bar us from the tree of life wasn't just another judgment upon us, but it was actually God's severe mercy. For to be able to be eternal, to have eternal life as sinners, 
um, is actually our ultimate ruin. And God wants to preserve that. So we must be kept from the tree of life. You know, when I, I, I think about the transhumanist quest for eternal life, it feels to me a little bit like trying to barge our way into the garden, past the flaming sword of the cherubim, and to take of the tree of eternal life, to live forever. Is that, that, that actually captures what so much of our culture is trying to do. And the great flaw in that quest is, is this, it's the presumption that somehow eternal life is something that would be worth having um, without the God who created us, right? That is the presumption, that, that to be able just to possess more life indefinitely as long as I want is really the thing that we need most and the thing that we want most. Uh, Gil Mylander is a uh, Christian ethicist who works in area of bioethics, one of the great theologians in this area, and he wisely notes and that this position really misses the whole point of what life is about. I want to read a little bit what Gill says. More, he says, more of this life could never fully satisfy our love's longings. For what we want is not simply quantitative, quantitatively more life, but a beauty that is qualitatively different. It's not just that we want more quantity of life, it's that the life that we desire, deep down, is qualitatively different. Going on, he says, we know ourselves as people who are always on the way, always wanting a fulfillment not yet given, this life has its own special beauty, but it does not finally quench the thirst that it evokes in us. As a character in Wallace Stegner's novel, The Spectator Bird, says, a, reasonable, a reasonably endowed, a reasonably well-intentioned man can walk through the world's great kitchen from end to end and arrive at the back door hungry. The idea is this, is you could live a thousand years and you could partake of all the great pleasures that this creation has to offer and you could still be deeply hungry and dissatisfied with what it has given you. No amount of extended life or pleasures or things that you can mark off your bucket list will actually Fulfill that deep desire and craving that you want. Because the possession of eternal life is not the possession of life unending. It is the possession of life in God. <laughs> See, what makes the garden a special place is not that it, you know, all the creature comforts. What makes the garden a special place, it was the dwelling place of God and man. It was the place in which the Lord God walked in the cool of the day with the man and the woman and had fellowship with them. Because the garden is a place where human beings and God dwell fully and completely together in intimacy. And all the pleasures and all the delights of the garden were simply a means to an end. They always pointed us beyond our, themselves to the God who gives them, the God who creates them. At the end of the th day, what we get in the garden is actually the presence and love of God. 
And the thing that we desire most in life as human beings is not just more life, it's God the source of life. So the turn towards death as a friend we welcome at the end of our life depends upon us overcoming the reality of death and the fear of death. But the reality is is that when, um, when it comes to the fight against death, death is undefeated. Death is undefeated. Nobody, it's death, you know, wins always. No one has ever fought against death. No one has ever escaped death. No one has ever uh, overcome death and lived to tell about it. Except one, <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. And yet even he was not spared death. We will confess uh, in a few moments here from the creed um, that he was crucified, died, and was buried, right? That he descended to hell, and on the third day he rose again. Jesus died and was buried, and yet he overcame death. He overcame death not by avoiding death, however. He overcame death by passing through death and being raised to life on the other side. And it must be the same for us. We overcome death not by avoiding it, not by kind of getting out of it. We overcome death by going through it, just like Jesus did. And this is why death becomes a central metaphor in the Christian life. Picking up your cross, or as Paul says in Galatians, um, about living in Christ. And this is what Paul reminds us from our sacred reading, right? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, the Father, we too might walk in newness and life. Friends, because Jesus has conquered death, the great enemy, death is no longer something we have to fear and avoid when the time comes. We don't seek it out prematurely. That's another sermon. But death is something that when it comes, it's okay. <laughs> you can make the passage because you know that's ultimately not the end. Death leads to something else. Death is a passageway to that place in which our hearts yearn most, which is the garden, but not the Garden of Eden, but a new garden, the garden of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, the very, so the beginning of the Bible starts with a garden and a tree of life. And the end of the Bible concludes with a garden and the tree of life. And John the seer, he gives us a description. These are, this is the very last chapter of the Bible. John gives us a, a picture of this garden. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp for, of sun or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen.
Lord, we long for that day. We long for the, the garden and the heavenly city and the renewed creation in which there will be no more death, in which the healing of the nations will take place and we will live at peace and we will see you face to face and we will be your bride and you will rejoice over us. Uh, Lord, um, death is around us all the time and it's easy either to be completely overwhelmed and despairing in the face of death or rather to try to avoid it, to ignore it, to numb ourselves. We pray for wisdom as believers to know how to navigate the reality of death and to have confidence and to know that we need not fear. That in Jesus Christ, that passageway of death leads to more life. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.